Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name my is... Name. <laughs> Does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. Braxton, <laughs> you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Hmm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. Once again, you're drinking whiskey, I'm drinking coconut water. Yeah, I think we probably beat that into the ground that you drink ladies' drinks before we do the podcast. And fortuitously, you're wearing a South African outfitter shirt. I'm wearing a South African outfitter hat. I just got back from South Africa on Thursday night. Um, my bag freaking finally arrived yesterday. I should have put that on Instagram because we were like, where are your bag? I was like, well, it's a funny story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For those of you that know Robbie personally, imagine that he lost a bag with some important hard drives in it in an African airport and imagine the, uh, stress level that he took things to with that not that i wouldn't have been i'm not really making fun of you I'm just well saying. let me let me explain the level and you know me better than anyone last night when i knew that the dallas flight had landed in gulfport at 10:09, i called someone at 9:40 saying hey is can you tell me if the bag's on the plane we can't tell you call us back at 10:40. i called at 10:40. i called at 10:45. 10:50. 10:55. 11, yeah. 11.05, 11.10, 11.15, 11.20. Nobody picked up the phone. Right. 
I called at 5.20 this morning. And somebody answered. I said, do you by chance have a Pelican case uh, with a lot of stickers on it? They're like, oh, no, we didn't see anything come in. I said, I I think it was on the flight last night. Can you just go check? He comes back on the phone. I got good news for you. It's here. I was like, I'm on my way. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. I can imagine. the. uh, That's exactly what I was referencing, that all of us get stressed about losing a bag. Robbie actually has anxiety when those kind of things happen, but we get through them and, and it works out and we got the bag. That's right. That's right. But awesome trip, epic trip, epic content, uh, dealt with some family stuff and um, it's all good. I've had a bunch of stuff happening in Blood Origins uh, in my 10 day hiatus. You want to give a right, little bit of a yeah. wrap up? Yeah, I kept the, kept the uh, wheels turning there, even with you on, the, on another continent. The, um, Hunters for the Hungry thing, big success there. Um, we're going to be able to uh, deliver the amount needed to start the, Wy- the Wyoming Wildlife Federation's Hunters for the Hungry program. One of our teams, um, we won't get into a whole lot of detail, but has some potential, like they're that our fundraiser ended and they're potentially pushing on and raising more because they weren't satisfied and they have an opportunity. Um, so hopefully we see a little bit more coming to fruition there. Great program. Through there. like Thanks the UFC and Cowboy Cerrone and whatnots, man. That's freaking yeah, crazy. Whole bunch of possibilities coming together there to make that happen. Um, but even, even just what we did. Thanks to everyone that participated. Incredible cause. Um, great story of hunters coming together to make a good thing happen. Big shout out to uh, Stone Glacier. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Couldn't have done it without them. Um, So cool story there. It's fun. I like, I like uh, the rigmarole and the work of putting projects together and working through them while they're on. And, but it's also kind of a cool relief when they, uh, are over and we and we accomplish what we set out to accomplish yeah we didn't quite hit the number mark but that's okay we built in a little bit of cushion there to help with storytelling and the actual number that we needed for the project itself got funded so super happy with that exactly exactly um we've got another project hot on the heels of hunters for the hungry uh it's actually part of what i was doing in south africa so uh, we will announce that probably mid-May and roll that out and show people what we have uh, conjured up, which is certainly, as people would expect from Blood Origins, is um, outside the box in terms of showcasing what hunting and hunters are doing for people and wildlife. Yeah, and then, then look, finally we have our uh, Thursday of next week we'll draw the april winners from the supporters program got some incredible batch of prizes in there so if you're listening to this on monday tuesday or wednesday or of uh the last week in april here you have a uh, your last chance to jump in yeah it's just three bucks and the prizes are incredible um and we'll announce a whole new batch of prizes for the month of may and keep it going and a huge shout out to all of our supporters it's a crazy thing that there's just way too many to list, but our both our individual supporters and our companies that make those prize packages is a thank you. Um, pretty pretty incredible thing that happens there. Yeah, it blows me away all the time. You just have random people connecting to 
hey, can we give you something? Can we help you with this? How can we help you more? Um, it's a full-time job keeping up with all of those individuals themselves. So, um, yeah, like in a, in a completely non-egotistical way, it's really freaking cool how many people are starting to reach out to us. Like to me, that's the, on the side of it that I work on the most of the getting the supporters, keeping the money flowing thing. Um, it's like really, really exciting and it's humbling that people are now calling peak some like people we never heard of are calling us and saying, Hey, what can I do to support us? Um, to me, that's the coolest thing ever. Like somebody that we don't know knows about us and, and knows about us enough that they want to become a part of supporting it. That, that part of it really gets me going. hundred percent, hundred percent. Well, we've got a couple of things on the, on the roundup this week. Um, a couple of new articles have hit the, the headlines. Um, I want to start with one that is actually not on this list. Uh, there's actually three or four articles roaming the internet right now. You can find one on CNN, uh, the independent out of the UK wrote something about it. Uh, conservation frontlines wrote something about it. And this is about Zimbabwe have decided to sell 500, uh, all of their quota, quote unquote. And when I say, qu I put that in quotes, I put a quota in quotes the quota isn't really, it's just an arbitrary number that they came up with uh, in the 90s. And 500 elephants represented, I think, 0.2 or 0.3% of the population. Well, anyway, COVID has hit Zimbabwe really, really, really hard. Specifically, not just the hunting tourism side, but the, the real ecotourism side of things. And so they're looking for 20 million uh, to fund essentially game and parks of Zimbabwe to keep it up and running, to keep everyone in a job, to keep everyone uh fed families fed and so they've decided to you know put some elephants on the on the on the chopping block and it's interesting that there is a very it's just it's the society we live in right there are the articles that are written by pro hunting groups and then there's articles written by people who do not like hunting and those that do not like hunting uh use the fact that iucn has just listed african elephants as endangered in their headlines and throughout the article and it's it's funny when you read the two articles the ones that are pro hunting actually speak to the managing director or the director general of zim parks and say why why did you do this and he has a very articulate reasoning for why they need to do this population control protein source and very much so a revenue generating mechanism for his department because his department receives no money zero money from the government budget. They re solely rely on ecotourism and hunting tourism. The other articles that are anti-hunting do not reference any interviews with the director general, but rather reference interviews with the, the director of a animal and human rights group. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. I saw, uh, uh, Adam Hart on Twitter, who I am not even going to try and give Adam's background, but I, I, he's, he's a guy that, that we follow in the blood origins account on Twitter. Um, and I should have done some research, but of course you surprised me with this topic. So I didn't, but he, you know, he's in that Amy Dickman group 
I don't want to even say that they're officially correlated to each other, but they're in a lot of the same conversations on Twitter. Right. Um, and Adam put a tweet out about this. You know, his tweet was like neutral. I don't think like I'm not lumping Adam in a pro hunting guy. Um, I, I think he's a conservationist. I don't know his stance on hunting, um, but he put a great tweet out. He said, you know, Zimbabwe to whatever, re release a 500 elephant quota for hunting in hopes to raise funding. If you don't like this, then you should fund Zim Parks, um, which to me is the, is the ultimate, right? I mean, you know, it, it's the people that are speaking with their dollars to fund Zim Parks at this time, again, as we've always stated before, at Blood Origins, we're giant fans of ecotourism. We don't bash ecotourism. Um, and we know that ecotourism does raise dollars for conservation. Um, we just wish sometimes that the other side would admit that so do the hunters going in. And in this time of COVID, um, it'll be interesting. Without making any assumptions, I bet that, uh, I bet that hunters come through um, and and raise the money needed for Zim parks to keep their conservation and anti-poaching and habitat restoration stuff happening. Um, I just thought it was a great tweet from, from Adam Hart, who's, you know, someone that we respect. I, I don't believe aligns completely with us, um, but very much understands that you've got to do something. Right. Um, and who are, who are we, or who are all these anti-hunting groups to knock Zimbabwe for using a natural resource to try and continue to protect their natural resources. Um, how many, you know, you got a Zimbabwe elephant population number on top of your head? I do not, but I know it's at its highest uh, that it's ever been, you know, Zimbabwe, Botswana, Namibia, all elephant populations are going up. So specifically that sub-region or Zimbabwe as a population, those elephants are certainly not endangered um, the population is viable. The population is increasing. And that 500 number is going to be a drastically, drastically, incredibly low percentage of the population. Um, it really just seems like realistically and ethically using a natural resource as a means to continue to protect your natural resources. Um, well, six days ago, Bloomberg.com suggested that Zim has an elephant population close to 100,000, which makes that 500.2%, right. 0.3% of, of, you know, realist, not realistic, but accurate. Right. So definitely not going to uh, damage the population numbers. And in turn, if there was some way to track it, the money generated will probably actually make there be more elephants in Zimbabwe. Well, so, here's, so, so here's the thing when it comes to elephants. I th you know, they use the, they use, when I say they, obviously the other side, the people against hunting, they always use the fact that elephants now are quote unquote endangered. But when you see a, a, a population number like Zim of 100,000, a population number in Botswana of 130,000, and you see quotas of 500 and 250, I, there's no argument there. There's no argument that this isn't a an, an this isn't an activity that's going to have any impact at all whatsoever 
on the population as a whole. It's not a population control measure either. It is purely an economic driver and a protein driver. And I would add a third, a human wildlife conflict mitigator. Those three things right. are what elephant control is about. It's not about population control because you would have to, that, that population control at 100,000, 130,000 is culling and is mass culling. Yeah, tens of thousands. It would have to be tens of thousands to get to an actual long-term population control number. No, it, it's, it's, and I think that the world is starting to see that a little bit on a bigger scale. Um, hopefully, hopefully we have a small part in that. I think that's why a couple of episodes ago, we talked about this paper that was written where conservation should be done on an individual basis instead of a species basis. And to me, that was very much a ploy of sooner or later, the antis are going to have to admit that ethical management, scientific based hunting with quotas is good for the population. 100%. We got no argument that it's not great for that one individual, right? I mean, that's harder to argue. Um, so if they take it down and ignore common sense and any type of conservation common sense at all um you know to me that's what that article was is that, that, that sooner or later they're going to have to admit that the places where we have good solid hunting based in science um it's good for the animals it's good for the population so they have to find a new way to attack hunting i really wish they you know who i'd have respect for is the group that just came out and said we hate hunting we want to stop hunting just because we don't like people killing animals that would be a much more honest approach to it um than trying to wrap it into this animal is listed as endangered by iucn so therefore we shouldn't have hunting because it hurts the species as a whole um it's just wrong like i, I don't know whatever they're not going to stop they're not going to stop we just got to keep spreading the word of the good Okay, so let's talk about the word of the good. And I'm throwing another thing at it to you out of the blue because it just literally happened and I'm, I'm actually responding to the guy right, right. now on, on Instagram. So we just dropped a, we're gonna drop a talking head. We dropped a talking head yesterday on a specifically aimed at the Senator Bob Duff of the state of Connecticut. And that morning I, or well, this morning, <laughs> I'm trying to play both past and present tense right now. I, I created an Instagram post and I had a couple of questions. Um, and the, the questions were, how do I put it? They could have been taken as condescending. Okay. I'm, pre I'm prepared to get condescending with old Bobby Duff if you want to. I mean, I know we should. But should we? Try to take but that's the thing, is that this is what we just nah, got called out it. on, okay? We just got called out. So it was, you know, I had questions in there that were very, um, you could say them, they were condescending. They were very much like, do you know, and in the refrain of, come on, idiot, you, you should know this kind of stuff. And a guy called us out on it. And so the, his response to was, 
was this, speaking to people whose job it is to represent what they ascertain, what their electorate would want them to enact as a con in, a, in a condescending and scolding manner is a sure way not to communicate your point. This goes for hunters, environmentalists, and, and conservatives, liberals. Politics is the art of the possible. These aggressive defensive attitudes and positions of no compromise, which pervade the current social and political climate, lead to exactly nothing ever being accomplished. Perfect for the echo chamber and self-satisfaction. So, do yeah. you think that I was too condescending? Um, obviously, for this commenter, you were. Um, I think uh, two things. I think one thing is you have made a name for yourself in being the utmost respectful, open-minded. Um, I, I think that that's a huge part of the draw of, of Blood Origins, right? Is that right. we try to, I don't know how to, like, I think the word gentleman pops into my head. We try to debate like gentlemen, gentle women, not trying to do anything there. Um, I also think there's a time and a place, which is what my little snarky comment a second ago was of, I think it's human nature because, because Senator Duff has obviously made it a point that he's going after hunting and he's not using fact and science based logic to do that. Um, to me, it's very similar to California bear ban thing of this is a person who is in, in California, he was actually deceitful, right? Like he said things that just were not facts. They were, they were lies. And Bob Duff continues to push it and push it so hard. Um, it, my, my point is, I think it's excusable when the frustration boils over. I don't think a never ending onslaught of snarky attacking is a good method. I never have, even in politics. I'm very passionate about my politics, but I try to remain level-headed in those types of conversations. Um, but Duff is just doing and saying things that don't make any sense. Um, and I, I'm, I'm stammering around to mm -hmm. say, I don't think that's how Blood Origins operates. I think every once in a while, some frustrations are gonna boil over. Um, and Bob Duff is a guy that can cause your frustration to boil over. That's, yeah, what and that's what I said to this guy. My response to him was, I can absolutely understand your rhetoric and approach and what you suggest in terms of how we approach things we would have enacted three years ago when this legislation was brought forward. But for three years running, this individual has chosen to ignore the facts. How would you prefer we direct our message? What's the compromise here? How about one on your ban list? There could be one compromise. Let science and data from the originating countries drive your decisions. If the animals are under threat from hunting, then put a moratorium in place for input. But unfortunately, you and I know that not what the, that's not what the senator is looking for. If there's no compromise on his part, three years running, then why must we compromise? Um, he responded to that and said, I 100% agree with you. And I, no doubt, I don't doubt your sincerity or frustration. So it was merely just a frustration piece that... Um, Anyway, it, it speaks to the rhetoric, right? It speaks to how we approach things. It speaks to the way that we communicate, the way that we address people. 
We don't tend to attack people. We don't tend to uh, call them out. We don't tend to belittle anyone. As you said, we tend to take a very much gentlemanly approach to engagement. But sometimes uh, that uh, the, the condescending frustration slips out. <laughs> I think it's just life too. You know what I mean? Like, I think it's just life. I think it's why Trump is, is such a big thing. You know, I mean, he is an arrogant, rude person, right? But there's a group of people in the United States that were so sick of everyone having kids gloves on about some of these things that they grabbed that. It's, it's, it's no different with your kids. I've seen you with your boys, Robbie, and it's very understanding and trying to educate them. But every once in a while, I would assume you probably have to raise your voice at them and get harsh with them. Not right because they're your boys, but because they're children. And that's a, that's a case. And it, it doesn't mean that it's our method, but, but Bob Duff is really, really, really trying to push this through and not listening to reason. Um, so yeah, a little bit of frustration, a little bit of making a point, um, but zero of the way Blood Origins likes to operate. Exactly, exactly. Okay, so now since I've, I've completely railroaded our roundup with <laughs> two things completely out of the blue, uh, what, what article do you want to hit first? You've got a couple of good ones in here. Um, I think a quick and easy one is just kind of a, not really up for a, a large-scale debate. I, I read the one about Colorado breaking... Um, oh, yeah the it's record for big game applications um so before you continue do you remember seeing a graph that says that would would have told you that that wasn't a surprise yeah where'd the graph come from you remember oh yeah all right you'll be going are we going back to, to uh, Matt Ranella? Yeah. 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 No, it, uh, I don't think it was, yeah, it wasn't a surprise to me either. Um, and, and I don't, you know, I, I didn't really take, uh, I didn't bring this as a de debatable point, really. I just brought it as a fact. I think it's a good thing. Um, I also, live in Colorado and we'll potentially bump into these nearly 700,000. They're not all going to draw. That's not true, but. Um, it's an amazing amount of money. Yeah. Everyone had, even if you don't draw, you're giving 50 bucks, right? 60 bucks, 685,000 big game applications submitted in 2021. Right. And I just, yeah, I know for a fact, I just got dinged for my, goat and sheep preference points in Colorado, um, which you don't have to, you, you don't, you know, that's the choice that, that I made that when I applied, if I didn't draw, which I absolutely knew I wasn't going to draw either one of those things, but you check a box and I'm willing to give them 50 bucks per species to pick up a preference point there. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's the good and the bad. Um, I, again, especially after talking to him, think that I pretty much across the board, agree with how Matt Ranella feels about things. Um, but I also very much 
from a ballot box standpoint, um, want more people willing to protect my right and future generations right to hunt in this country. So it's a cool thing, not necessarily a thing that the world, and you know, people are going to tell you it's COVID driven. People are going to tell you that it'll go back down. Um, you know, I'm now after also talking to Matt Ranella, I don't even think I understand the numbers anymore. He, he, he made it so in depth on the data of hunters and hunter applications. Um, I would like to know, like, am I, do you think that I, I think I might be responsible for nine of those is that that's how it works. Right. Correct. Every single, like I applied every for single species, every single species that you applied for is, is individual. So if you applied for elk, mule deer, whitetail, goat, bison, sheep, whatever you did, those applications total up. Yeah. So technically, a thousand people could be responsible for 90,000 of those. Not, not everybody applied for everything, but um, no, I just thought it was a, it's a number that as a Colorado resident makes me go, oh, more trucks. <laughs> um, it also pushes your, lover dream of of, pushes your dream of killing a mountain goat till when you're probably 80. Right. Yeah. At least in Colorado. Um, I, I, that doesn't bother me at all. I'll give them that 50 bucks for, for the next 40 years if I have mm -hmm. to until I die. That, oh. That's fine with me. Yeah. Um, I was unsuccessful but, in New Mexico drawing my Hemsbok, my Oryx tag. You were? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, big old fat red mark across my screen. Colorado in a weird way, which I don't understand. I need to ask about this. Like goats and sheep... It only takes them like three weeks to process after the deadline. I guess it's probably just a numbers thing. They do goats and sheep first. Then you got to wait another month to find out about everything else. Mm -hmm. um, but as a, as, a, as a lover of this thing we do, um, it's exciting to me. I, I want more people involved. I also, you know, am fortunate to live in a state that – I can go to public ground even in the middle of the elk bugle and if, if I work at it, get to a place where I don't run into other people. It's that's, that's still very, very possible, even with those kind of application numbers. So um, yeah, to me, it was just interesting that they broke the record, broke the all time record. Um, and the number was interesting to me. If you'd have asked me how many applications I thought there were every year, I would have had absolutely zero. I would have guessed 200,000. And last year's was over 600,000. So that's how uninformed I was about that. So it was just interesting to me. That's why I stuck it on the list. That's good. That's good stuff. Uh, the other one, very, very similar tie to this, is 3.1 million raised for habitat restoration wildlife projects through the Utah Conservation Permit Program. And uh, those conservation projects are funded through the Utah Watershed Restoration Initiative. Uh, it's a partnership-based program uh, through the DNR of Utah. It looks like just a grant-based program that funds projects that people submit grants for. And they submitted, uh, obviously pushed out a bunch of money. Um, and they had a pretty cool statistic in there. Since 2001, the conservation permits in Utah, which is what hunters are purchasing, 
have generated more than $59 million for conservation work in Utah. Yeah, and uh, I think there's probably like, I think you could probably start an entire podcast on the Utah tag situation and the incredible things they've done, but then also the incredible backlash. It, it, from, from my knowledge, I, I, I'm not saying Utah has the biggest amount of drama. It's the one that I'm the most familiar with through some friends that are residents and even one that's involved very much. Um, lot of A uh, lot of hate the rich guy in Utah um, with, with, their, with their conservation permits and the things that they do. Um, that's hard for me to understand. It's hard for me to understand. There aren't enough auction permits. Now, if you took the raffle permits, which in my opinion are very, very affordable to get into, there's a lot of permits that go into their conservation permits, but the auction permits are so small in their number, but generate so, mm -hmm. so much money. Mm -hmm. It's just absolutely insane. The things that they've been able to do in Utah. Um, but yeah, that's that's why I put that on there. It's a great number. That two thousand one fifty nine since two thousand one fifty nine million dollars. Um, I mean, you're talking about one with. state. Yeah, it's tough yeah, to argue and, with. And the things that they've done, the the numbers and population growth and habitat stuff that they've done is just incredible. Hundred percent. No, and, and as you point out, you, you know Utah is not an outlier every single state is doing something like this, maybe not to the magnitude of the Western states, but there's money being raised for conservation everywhere. And then you've got the PNR monies, Pittman Robertson monies coming into every state. Uh, it adds up to a lot, a lot of money. Um, that I think that, you know, people listening to this podcast, those are the kinds of things that we want you to sort of plant the seed in the back of your brain. Remember that number since 2001, 59 million has been raised through these conservation permits for from hunting and hunters for conservation work in Utah. So next time someone goes, you know, hunting doesn't provide anything, doesn't provide any re revenue or resources. It's a pretty good number for you to remember. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's ridiculous. On a really quick, I need to pause and give another Blood Origins internal update because I now have a nine week old puppy in the house who is instigating a fight with the two year old 80 pound dog right now. Um, so. I, I hear it. That family I believe that family members are trying to uh, rectify that, but the uh, puppy who's, you know, he's 12 pounds maybe, has decided to pick a fight with the big dog, so it's not going well for him right now downstairs. <laughs> All right. Um, shed hunting. Have you ever shed hunted? Yeah, I think like in a, like in a secondary or turkey. I, um, honestly, probably one time. Um, now in, in, I was born and raised, ran an outfitting service in Kansas. So turkey hunting in Kansas, um, it's been a lot of time turkey hunting. But I wasn't really trying to locate turkeys cause I rolled into a hot bed of sheds. Um, and it's a great time for it. It's the perfect, it's perfectly timed for it. Um, 
other than that one time I had some friends here and I had found, um, I found a really, really big six by six elk shed on, on my property in Colorado. It was like a monumental dork new mountain guy moment for me that I was just ecstatic that I found this big elk shed. Um, and then Daryl and duck, two friends of mine that, you know, um, were out here and I'm like, look, I don't care what you guys are doing. We're finding the other side of this thing. So I actually, we spent a half a day shed hunting for one actual specific shed and found it by the way. Um, duck found it. I'll give him credit for that. But this elk was big. I knew he didn't go far. His head was lopsided. I, I, I carried the one shed back in from the mountains. It's heavy. Um, but no, not really. I love finding them. Um, I think it's a thing that I'd like to do now more. You know, elk sheds obviously get me a little more ramped up than than whitetail sheds did. Um, not that I didn't. I, I still love finding whitetail sheds. The weird thing to me, here's why I posted this. First of all, when I moved here, Colorado has a shed hunting season. You, I believe it's from January 1 to April 1. You cannot shed hunt. Um, and this sense. is what this article's. Okay. 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 First of all, I want it known. I did not shed hunt at all um, during that time frame. But why does it make sense? So um, it's all tied to body condition that these elk or animals or wildlife white-tailed deer have gone through a rut and that rut has caused them to specifically the males which is what you're shed hunting for to lose body condition and when they're getting into that time of the year january through april you can imagine especially in the western states there's going to be a lot of snow on the ground and the resources available to those animals are few and far between and so the last thing you want is for them to go through, quote unquote, another hunting season from January to April with not hunters now, but with, with, with you know, some sort of weaponry, but hunters now invading every inch of that mountain, pushing elk around, which is going to cause stress on the animals, which is going to especially, um, you know, and then finding new resources to feed on. And so anything that's tied to, you know, changing the potential of the health of an animal is something that's, you know, the department wants to look at. So that's my logic when it comes to what I said to make sense is that you're, you're causing undue stress on an animal at a time of the year that is already stressful. Okay, so here's my grayness. This is not a hard stance by Cody. This is a, you can still do everything else in those woods that you want to do. Mm. Except, I mean, you can still Come hike. on, there's nobody hiking into these places where people are shed hunting. Sure there is. Hikers are Around staying on the paths, man. Hikers do not stray off the paths, Cody. Hikers go into the mountain on a path. They come out of the mountain on a path here's my thing i'm not like i seriously am not pushing to change this it's just my head twists around how do you even remotely hope to enforce something like that i mean that's just 
that's just guidance to people like me who are going to follow. I mean, anyone else that's up there walking around and finds a shed. I mean, can I tell you how hard it would have been? And I spent time in the mountains. I was scouting turkeys during that. If I had come across some big seven by seven shed laying on the ground, I'd have done it. I'd have left it there. I'd have taken a lot of pictures and been upset, but I'd have done it. I, I just, it, it, it's a weird law to me that it's actually a law. Um, I don't want to dwell on it too much. It's not like I'm upset. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not like I'm going to break the law, but it, it's a weird one to me of how do you enforce that? I mean, how do you, I, think I it's, could, I, I really think it's tied to the big areas, right? These, these areas in Colorado or Utah or Montana, uh, again, I don't know what if uh, all the states have shed hunting seasons. I, I think that they do, but I think it's tied to the big, uh, the big grounds that elk tend to congregate on, and and, and sure. resource pressure and whatnot. Sure. And as you said, how do you enforce it? The simplest way is to put a blanket ban, a blanket season across every single square inch of public ground, uh, or private and or private ground in the state versus making it more complicated by saying, okay, this area you can go in, this area you cannot go in, this area you can go in for two weeks, this area you can only go in for three weeks. So. Then to, okay, again, not a, not a hill I'm wanting to die on. This article, in fact, though, could be a hill I'm ready to die on. Because <laughs> the, article, the article takes it much further and it's against shed hunting in general. It's not just about it gets more into the commercialization of shed hunting and, and the selling of sheds. Um, this, this is a hill I'll die on. I mean, we're talking about a thing that it's not like sheds are a part of the ecosystem once they hit the, I mean, they are, and I grant some things eat them, but they're not a food source. They're not a reliable food source for anything. There's no, there's no, in my opinion, there's no ecosystem damage by removing the shed and then selling it. There's no animal damaged. I, I wouldn't say the same thing about a tree. That's a living organism. I wouldn't say the same thing about any, I wouldn't say the same thing about rocks. I understand why they don't want people taking rocks out of national parks. Because if a million people did it every year, we're not making rocks that fast. But we actually are making sheds. You could take them all out. Like every shed could be picked up in Colorado. And does that do any ecosystem damage? Why is shed hunting not ethical? I don't understand this guy's point. Again, I think it's tied to the animal itself. And, but it is an interesting, it isn't, the article does start, the, the question is, is shed hunting ethical? And I think he ties the article to the price of sheds. Um, so the numbers that he talks about is these days a collector can get about $18 per pound for a modest shed compared to $1.50 in 1974. Um, so it's an average increase of 8% a year. And obviously you've got people who then use those uh, elk chandeliers. They take the elk sheds to create elk chandeliers, which are very expensive pieces. Um, 
So I guess he's tying the ethics of going in to make a profit of this resource versus going in just for the sake of, you know, enjoying doing and experiencing what the, what the mountain or, or you know, the time uh, you get. That was a bit rambly at the end there, but I think you understand what I'm saying. I understand what you're saying. I, I just, I think this is a kind of a hoity-toity virtue signaling <laughs> thing. I mean, it, it, for a thing that literally, like, is this, is the, I get it. I get it. If you make it a commercial thing, you're going to drive people up there that are strictly doing it for the commercial thing. And they wouldn't be trotting around in the wilderness without that. Um, I, I just, I, I, this is someone in my opinion, that's looking for someone to attack and to seem holier than thou about, um, again, I will concede on the, that it's, I'll concede that it's good for the animals if there aren't, thousands of people walking around the woods while there's snow on the ground, bumping them around and creating stress in their lives. I get that a hundred percent. Hence, I did not pick up a single shed till the shed hunting season in Colorado commenced. But this whole is shed hunting ethical thing. Um, I think it's just literally the epitome like I said, you could take them all every year and you're not damaging the ecosystem. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Okay. All right, actually, last article. Um, right, we've been on that too long. Last article is a, a shining light. Uh, we typically do not, and we get called out for it, is that, you know, where's the, where's the positive news? Where's the, the shining lights? And I actually just bought this woman's book um, because I read this article and I was like, whoa, that's a cool, it's a cool article. Uh, and her, the book is called Beloved Beasts, Fighting for Life in an Age of Extinction. And so the author of this book is a lady called Michelle Neuhaus. Neuhaus, I guess I'm saying it right. It sounds Dutch. If anybody has a contact for Michelle, uh, please reach out to us because we'd love to talk to her about her book because it's all about conservation success stories. feel like from a pre-discussion that you set me up to be a bad guy here i agree 100 <laughs> percent. i agree it was a cool article i i want it noted michelle if you ever hear this i i thought the article was cool enough that i put it on the show notes for today and shot thought it should be discussed um and i will also admit that i took the childish and immature approach when i first read it that I didn't feel like hunting was given enough credit. When I say it out loud and it's being recorded, I feel a little bit like a kindergartner who's mad that his candy got taken or something. Um, and I haven't read the book. I will read the book. Um, I just, uh, again, it's, it's very cool that she takes an approach that while there's still some serious crises in the world, there's also some things that are working in a very good way. Right. Um, and no matter which side of this hunting argument you're on, it's kind of refreshing to hear. It's not all doom and gloom. It's not all horrible. Um, 
And again, I need to read the book and I'm apologizing again to Michelle that I did take a little bit of a, hey, you know, you didn't even mention in this article, which she may very well have in the book. Now I'm an asshole for not realizing that initially. Um, you know, I don't, I, I think you take the first half of the 20th century, which was when the big turnaround really in North America happened, the big mm -hmm. shift happened. Um, and you know, that was almost exclusively, nearly predominantly hunters driving that. Um, and still to this day are a huge, huge factor in it. Um, so that's where I got kind of sassy about it. But again, thank you, Michelle and whoever authored this article for giving us a, a bright note. Benji Jones. The author yeah, is Benji. Benji Jones. Much easier last name to pronounce than Michelle's. And uh, no, I, I, I think it's a cool article. I, I think that I, I wish that like... I said this one time that I think every news source, if they're going to put a slant on things, that they could even it out if they put the other slant on it. Like, you know, if this thing's terrible, blah, 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 but here's why some people don't see it as terrible, blah, blah, blah. I think that would do a much better job of news sources educating the world. Um, and so kudos to them for putting out a, a shining light. Well, what I liked about it was this, is when Benji asked the question, what are some examples of what of how we've done that right and when they say we've done that right meaning conservation and and bringing species back where conservation is working and the example that she gives is namibia she could have used every any example around the world but she uses namibia uh and she talks about the community conservancies where people who are mostly subsistent hunters and farmers have a great deal of influence in how to manage the local wildlife. They have the ability to set hunting quotas, for example. She talks about the black rhino population that was almost defunct, now back uh, to great strengths. She talks about social impacts that are also significant. Um, they, she talks about human-wildlife conflict, that these species are a pain in their necks, but they want to be able to hunt them for food. They also want generally them around and they have pride in them. You know, that's somebody, and I think this is what we've got to remember, not everyone thinks front and center of hunting, um, but everything she just said there stems from, and, and here in Namibia, the community conservancies decide whether or not they want hunting tourism, they want ecotourism, or they want both. And so there's probably a mixture of things that she's talking about in there. And so the conservancy model in Namibia is certainly a very, very good example of conservation. And as we've said many times in the past, hunting is not the be all and end all of conservation. It's a tool in our toolbox. And Namibia uses it very, very well in that where does it work best? They're going to utilize it. Where it doesn't work best, they're not going to utilize it and they're going to use ecotourism. So I think that, and again, I just started the book yesterday. Um, she goes into explaining these conservancies a little bit more. Um, but yeah. Uh, I, I think that I would love to have her on a podcast and ask her what her perspective on hunting is, because she certainly has delved into it. Um, I feel like she's going to fall in the Adam Hart, Amy Dickman camp. That is, I see it. I, I don't it. like it, but it works. Yeah. I'm trying to be good, but in the part in the, yeah. 
let's you're absolutely right let's read the book and let's talk to her there was <laughs> definitely some opportunity to like they see even the people see the species are a pain in their even if those species are a pain in their necks they want to be able to hunt them for food but they also generally want them around they have pride in them um Do we just not want to say that they also see some commercial value in them? Is that what we're what we're stopping from saying there? Because I don't know. Those are those are the questions. But commercial value comes from both hunting and ecotourism. Right, but why not mention it? Either way. Well, maybe she's not thinking in that mindset, right? She's not thinking in that value mindset constantly. Oh, which right. you would think so. Bobby's a better person than me. Michelle, if you ever listen to this, I promise if you come on and talk to us and Robbie lets me be on, sometimes he just doesn't let me be on the show. But if he lets me be on, I'll be incredibly nice and unassuming with my questions. <laughs> All right, that's the roundup. That's done. Anything else? No. Share our stuff. Become a supporter. Yep, yep. Download the podcast. Can Like, subscribe to it. Cause that's a number that I watch and I like to see it go up. So subscribe to the podcast, maybe download like four or five different podcast things. Like it's Spotify, iTunes, Google podcasts, subscribe to us on all makes me feel good. <laughs> Cody's is a numbers guy. Uh, the numbers that I like are the five stars. Give us five stars on, I think you can only do it on Apple. So give us five stars. If you don't like what we do, don't give us one star. Just give us a comment that says, Hey, kick Cody off the podcast. You guys are going to be so much better for it. Right. Right. The subscriptions will skyrocket. If you get rid of that guy. <laughs> All right, buddy. I got a turkey. I got a turkey. I got a turkey. Yeah. Congratulations. Was it In on Colorado, your property? On my, land, on my property. Awkwardly close to my house actually, but yes. <laughs> my property. Yeah. Was that the one that you were chasing with Avery and Avery gave up? Yeah. <laughs> No, no, we still have more. I scouted them for three days in a row. Like I did a hyper scout. I mean, I had them, they're, they're, they're near, they're, they're impossible to roost. I can't figure out how to roost them because there's so many trees, right? And the, I think they're roosting actually about 800 feet in elevation above my house. Like I don't know exactly where they're at, but three days in a row, morning, night, shot gobbles, bam, bam, bam. This one guy is just hammering. And I have no idea. It's not hunting pressure. People are going to tell you, oh, it's hunting pressure opening day. There's nobody up here. It's just me. And Avery and I go out, my wife and I go out opening morning. And I'm talking with such consistency that I'm halfway cocky that I'm about to get her her first turkey or get her on her first turkey. Nothing for two days. Monday comes and she goes back to work and I sneak out early in the morning and he's right where he was again. Actually had another gob. I, he actually had seven hens. I, I think he literally hinned up the day before opening season, uh, the, the day before the opener a little bit. But uh, three days later, I got my first uh, turkey on my little slice of Colorado here. My first animal that I've ever gotten and and four weeks from now we'll be doing a podcast where I'll either either be ecstatic or just downtrodden about the Colorado draw results. So everyone we'll should prepare for my emotional instability then. <laughs> well, I enjoyed it. Good to be back. Absolutely. Welcome back to the States. 
Well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.